G'day. <laughs> and the great thing about being uh, back here for a third time is I, I know I can say that without feeling like an idiot. And I also know that I don't have to start speaking slowly and then speed up to Australian speed because you're so acclimated to my accent now, right? I'm sure I almost sound American to you, right? Okay. I love my experiences of church in America. And I must say the worship services here in Green Bay, I'm talking about you, Troy, are amongst my favorite experiences, including the, the worship service that follows at about midday today. That's uh, also uh, a profound and moving experience. But I've had so many fantastic church experiences in America. I don't mind telling you that my first church experience in America was weird. And I know it's weird and not normal, but at the time it was my first experience. Within an hour of arriving in your country, I'm in my hotel room, I hit on the television, and guess what I'm greeted by? The all-American TV evangelist from the southern states of America, who shall remain nameless, years ago, so not a current one. And his first words to me, as he looked down the barrel of the TV camera, was God is a God of prosperity and wants to prosper your life in every way. Now, I was a struggling musician at the time, and so I was really interested in a bit of prosperity, so I tuned in. And he said, God will bless you. And he had this special deal going on this particular day in which he would send me a cloth looked like a tea towel that you do the dishes with, but he called it a prayer cloth that he'd prayed over personally. And he said, you can put it in your pantry and you'll always have enough food. Put it in your house, you'll have the house of your dreams. Put it in your car, you'll end up with the car of your dreams. And he said, this is free of charge with every $1,000 donation to my church. I said, man. And to prove that the magic worked, that God was a God of prosperity, He threw to the the film and there was a little documentary on his own car collection and houses. God is a God of prosperity. You know, just one week later, I was back in Australia in a little country town called Kula. And in Kula, I was speaking in a pub. You call them pubs or bars here? Okay. In a bar, in a little country town in Kula. And I was speaking to this pub on the topic of God's love. And in the middle of my talk, this woman at the back that I couldn't see because she's in the dark, she yelled out across the room, how can you say God loves us when he takes people from our lives? And then I saw this silhouetted figure walking toward the stage. I'm freaking out. And she sits right here and just stares at me for the whole talk. And I'm just trying desperately not to catch her eye. And after the event, you know, I was even helping pack up with the road crew, which I never did, and uh, just to avoid this woman, and she caught my eye, and she pointed at me, and she went. (laughs) And so I went over, and I sat down with her, and she told me the most horrendous story of her life experience, where she'd lived quite a life, a million miles from God, but she'd had such tragedy dealt into her life. Right up until just weeks before I met her, she lost the only people she still got on with in her family in a terrible accident. 
She said, don't tell me God loves me. He hates me. He's a tyrant. God is the God of prosperity. And the bloke had the prosperous life to prove it. God is an angry tyrant. And the woman had the broken life to prove it. It raises the question, how could you ever know what God is like? When there are so many different visions of God, and it would be fabulous if I had the keynote slide. Thank you. How could you ever know? It leads to the criticism you often hear that actually God is just a projection of your own life experiences. You've heard people say this? This was the great criticism of the father of all psychoanalysts, Sigmund Freud, in the early 20th century. He said exactly that, that God is a psychological projection of your need for a father figure. And so you project that and start believing in God. We still hear this today, right? But it was Sigmund Freud who gave us that idea. Now, very smart people in the early 20th century responded to Sigmund Freud in a quite powerful way. He said, people would say to him, like C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford scholar, Christian, said to Sigmund Freud, well, if your atheism you know, uh, is something different, explain how. Because he said, you accuse me of projecting my life experience and thinking there's a God. Why isn't your atheism just a projection of your own rejection of an overbearing German father? (laughs) Cuts both ways. C.S. Lewis, so smart. (laughs) He died 50 years ago on the 22nd November. Uh, The JFK... C.S. Lewis died one hour before JFK. And this intellectual giant hardly even made the news that day, of course, anywhere in the world, including England. Which is, I think, how he would have liked it. But my point is, you can't rely on life experience to know what God is like. So it raises the question, how can you have clarity? And the passage that Troy asked you to look up is a classic example of how the disciples asked for clarity. This passage in John 13, verse 33, right through chapter 14, is Jesus explaining that he's going away. This is the final night he'll be with them. And you can see that in verse 33. He says, my children, I will only be with you a little longer. I'm going. Now, if you've been saving up your theological questions to ask Jesus, this is the night to ask it, don't you think? You've been within three years, you've seen amazing things, you've heard beautiful things from his lips, and now he says, I'm going. Don't you reckon you'd fire up your best question that you were too embarrassed to ask in case the apostles thought you were an idiot? Well, this is what happens in the conversation. First Peter, then Thomas, then Philip, ask their theological questions. They want clarity, and you can see Peter. He pipes up. The first question, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, in other words, by morning, you will disown me three times. This is so Peter. 
I'll do anything for you, Lord. Overconfident in his own piety, in his own spirituality. Anyone here like that this morning? But Jesus says, you know what, Peter? I'm sorry to tell you this. You'll betray me within just a few hours. And then Jesus turns and says these beautiful words in verse 1 of chapter 14. But it's all the one section. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I find that astonishing. He's just told Peter, you're going to betray me. And then he says, but don't be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. And that just prompts Thomas to ask a question. Thomas has heard Philip, uh, sorry, Peter ask a question, and Thomas is going, I've got a better question than that. Not just where are you going, look what Thomas says in verse 5 of chapter 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Peter wanted to know where. Thomas wants to know the way. He's wanting more clarity. But look what Jesus says in reply. I mean no disrespect to the Lord at this point, but Jesus' answer is weird. And if you're a Christian and you've read this passage a million times, you can't see how weird it is. But if you're not, you can spot how weird this is. Thomas says, show me the way. Look what Jesus says, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, what, what is the way? I am the way. Now, think about this. If you ask me what is the way to the little country town in Australia called Kular, and I said to you, I am. You'd think, what? What does that mean? Jesus is asked, what is the way to God? What is the way to the Father? Give us that clarity. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's not claiming to know the way like every other religion. He's not claiming to know the truth like every other religion. He's not claiming that there is life you can somehow pursue like every other religion. He's saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am. I am. He is claiming to completely resolve the dilemma of how you know what God is like. He is the way. Now, of course, as soon as I say that, I know that it cuts right across what has become almost a new gospel in our society. The new gospel says, no religion can be truer than another. You hear Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And our Western secularist replies, no, 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 no religion can be truer than another. The atheist version of this is, no religion can be truer than another because all religions are false. Simple. But the nicer version, the version that you more often hear from the secularist today, is no religion can be truer than another for the simple reason that they're all true. They all teach basically the same thing. You heard that, haven't you? Sure, they may differ on Peripheral issues, but fundamentally they're the same. The problem with this approach that is called pluralism, the point that there are the plurality of truths or expressions of truths, is that none of the religions thinks they teach the same thing. 
The secularist says, oh, you all teach the same thing. And the Hindu scratches his head and goes, hang on, but I believe in many gods. And our Muslim friend says, I believe in one God. And Buddha sits over here and he goes, there's no God. Friends, if there are many gods, there is not just one God. And if there is one God, there are not many. And if the Buddha's right, there's neither many nor one. I've never been good at maths, but even I can tell you they're not all the same. Hinduism teaches reincarnation, that your soul, when you die, goes up into the heavens, drops down after a certain period of time, and reincarnates in a new body. If you've been good, you go up the scale. If you've been bad, you become a deer in Wisconsin. <laughs> now, I must say, that was a joke handed to me on a silver platter by the Reverend Dr. Troy. Now, they're not the same thing as what Buddhism teaches. Buddha said there is no reincarnation. There's a whole Hindu uh, Buddhist text that says there is no reincarnation. So how dare the secularists say Buddhism and Hinduism teach the same thing when they say they don't? I could multiply this a hundredfold for the rest of the day, the differences between the faiths. And it's no good saying, but what's true for one doesn't have to be true for another. Have you heard people say that? They usually say it over a glass of wine. It sounds far more sophisticated. Oh, that's lovely that that's true for you. But that's not true for me. At which point you must say, in what sense? How can it be true in any sense that there is just one God and at the same time be true in any sense that there isn't? How can it be true in any sense that Jesus is God in the flesh who died on a cross and true at the same time as the Quran explicitly says that Jesus is not God, that he didn't even die on a cross? The true for me idea only sounds good with a little bit of wine. Because it's no better than my saying to you, it's true for me that I am speaking here today, but it's not true for you. In what sense? You do not honor the religions by insisting on their sameness. You dishonor them. The only way to honor the religions is to listen to their distinctives, let them speak their own differences, and then scrutinize what is unique about them. And what Jesus says next is the epitome of unique. We're told that Philip pipes up with a great question in verse 8. <laughs> He's heard Peter. He thought, that's a lame question. Thomas, that's pretty good. I can do better. Listen to Philip's quote. Verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Can you hear the passion in his voice? That will be enough. In other words, that will satisfy my longing if you just show us the Father. 
Now, I have no idea what he expected in reply because he's asking Jesus to show him God. He doesn't want to know where to find God, the way to find God. He wants to see God the Father. What was he expecting? I guarantee he was not expecting to hear what he heard from Jesus in verse 9. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, you don't have to rely on your personality and life experience to work out what God's like. You just look at Jesus and you see God. I firmly believe this is the most extraordinary statement in all of the sacred literature I've read. You will not find a single statement in the Hindu Upanishads of someone who said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Nothing like this in the Quran or the Buddhist Tripitaka. In Christianity alone, do you find a figure who has the audacity to say, if you have seen me, you've seen God. C.S. Lewis, that great Oxford scholar, said, this is so outrageous. Either it puts Jesus on the level of a man who thinks he's a boiled egg, or in a category all on his own in the history of religion. Let me try and illustrate the profundity of what Jesus has just said. Try right now, imagine what my father looked like. Okay? Try, try imagine what my father looked like. Now, I lost him when he was about my age, so you need to picture him. About my age, maybe a bit younger. Now, if I got you to sketch your image of my dad and hand it in, We'd have, I don't know, 150, 200 guesses, wouldn't we? Because you've never seen my dad. There's only one person in the room who knows that, and that's his grandson, who never met him, but knows what he looked like. And even if some of your sketches of my father were beautiful works of art, as creative as the sort of thing Troy could pull off, it's still a creative guess. And I can make the whole thing go away by showing you my father. Sitting on a beach, very Australian thing to do, with his cigarette in mouth, that's becoming less Australian. What have I just done? I've given you a revelation to end the speculation. I have disclosed to you what was really a guess and even if all of the claims of the religions are beautiful speculations, they're speculations. For Jesus alone said, if you have seen me, you've seen God. But there's one more thing I want to point out. Because for me, the most beautiful, extraordinary thing about Christianity is not just that it is the only faith in which you can see God in a person. It's the kind of God that is revealed in Jesus who will pardon 
forgive, be tender toward even the deepest betrayer amongst us. I kind of skipped over that first paragraph, didn't I? Go back to it. Where Jesus confronts Peter with those extraordinary words. You will disown me three times. And then his very next words in 14.1 are, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. I go to prepare a place. I want you to ponder this. The extraordinary thing about this is not just that you can see God in the person of Jesus. It's who God is in the person of Jesus. God can look a betrayer in the eyes and say, nonetheless, there's a place for you. You do not find this, friends, in Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. I mean no disrespect to my Hindu, Buddhist and Muslim friends. They, if they were here, would say the same thing. Forgiveness, mercy for the betrayer cannot be that easy. There must be justice. There must be personal atonement. There must be good deeds. But look at what Jesus says. You will betray me, Peter. But even still, don't let your hearts be troubled. There's a place for you. Because the next morning, Jesus would be on a cross. Where he would bear the wrong, even of Peter. That's why Jesus can say, don't despair, there's hope, there's forgiveness, there's mercy for you. There is a beautiful story with which I'll end, told by Max Licardo in his book, No Wonder They Call Him Saviour. If you've never read it, it's worth reading. He tells the true story of a young girl called Christina who grew up in a village just on the edge of Rio. And her mum always warned her not to go into Rio alone. But as Christina grew up through her teenage years, she wanted to go to Rio and experience the party life of that city. One morning, she got up very early and took off to Rio. When her mum got up, she knew what Christina had done. She panicked. She went straight into the city to try and find her. She didn't find her. She'd always warned Christina that the only work a young woman could get in Rio in those days was the most demeaning kind of work possible. Her mum searched for days and couldn't find Christina. Before she went home, she had one idea. She went into a tourist district of Rio, went into those photo booths where you put money in and get a photo of yourself. She got a whole lot of photos of herself and on the back of each photo, she wrote a little note to her daughter, just in case. And she went and stuck these photos with these notes all over the sleaziest joints she could find in Rio, in the brothels and the bars, in the women's toilets, in the stairwell. And then she went home devastated. Apparently, Christina had turned to the most demeaning of jobs to stay alive. Unsure that her mum would ever take her back. Ashamed. But weeks down the track, she's walking down the stairwell of one of these sleazy joints. And she sees on the wall a photo of her mum. Can you imagine the feelings? 
She takes the photo of her mum in utter surprise and notices the writing on the back of the photo. She read the words, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please just come home. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please just come home. And in that moment of clarity, she went home and was welcomed. And I tell you that because this passage tells us something even more amazing. God has left a photo of himself in the world. Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. And attached to this photo is a similar message. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, please just come home. Because at the heart of the image of God in Jesus is a cross. Where Jesus gave himself even for betrayers. Whether you are a failing Christian or a faraway unbeliever, this passage says, even for those who have turned their back on Christ, you turn back to him and there's forgiveness. Christianity, friends, is utterly unique. Not only in the claim that you can see what God is like, you don't have to rely on your life experience or personality to know what God is like. But more importantly, that God in Jesus Christ welcomes back betrayers. So will you come back And I can't think of a better way to do that than to move into communion. As you eat that bread and drink that grape juice, you remember the image of God on a cross. God on a cross. God wants you to think, when you see Jesus on a cross, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what God is like. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it. Why would you resist it? Why would you not come home? Let me pray. Lord, so many complicated themes here today, but will you please take these words, your word, and bring it to our hearts? I pray for everyone, whether it's the failing, disowning Christian or the faraway unbeliever, will you give them such a picture of your mercy in Jesus Christ that they come home and receive your mercy for which you died? 